Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who put the fine in fine woodworking. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's Wood Talk number 175 for March 24th, 2014. On today's show, Nick is having some finishing issues due to wood movement. Jens is considering a 15-inch helical head planer. Miller wants to protect his milk pig finish. Topher wants some uh, decking lumber. And Drew wants to use his old drill press as a spindle sander. Jim is struggling to get a mirror finish on those chisels. And Matt's just plain boring. Hmm. Yep, I've been told that so many times. <laughs> all right, well, all that and more coming up. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Bruso Hardware. Bruso has been manufacturing high-precision woodworking hardware in the U.S. for over 20 years. The entire line is produced at their factory in Belleville, New Jersey, and is available through distributors worldwide. View the complete product line, including knife hinges, butt hinges, quadrant hinges, and more at Brusso.com. As a special offer to Wood Talk listeners, use the code WOODTALK at checkout for a 10% discount. Yeah, make sure you use that code, 10% off. That hardware is awesome, and I don't know how long they're going to keep the code up. I imagine once once the campaign with us is done, they're probably going to shut it down. So get on I think it they're probably going to shut it down if I use it one more time. Yeah. Like, Wait a minute. <laughs> that's, a, that's a conversation we had like behind the scenes. Can, are, can we use that? Because yeah. we kind of need. Okay? <laughs> is it is it unethical or is it kind of ethical? I think it's fine. Go ahead and use it. So uh, use the code Wood Talk Bruso Hardware. Good stuff. Uh, you know, normally at the beginning, this is where I like to mention our recurring donors, and there's quite a few recurring, but no new ones to mention. But uh, just a quick thank you to everybody who helps us out that way. And you could yes. do that too at uh, WoodTalkShow.com left hand column. Some links there to help us out with some uh, small one time sort of uh, either one time or small recurring donations. Whatever you want to do. We're flexible. We're fl- when you're We're giving large us recurring. large recurring is good too. Actually, the yes. limit is ten. I, I didn't set up anything more than ten. Um, mm, I think but, you need to reevaluate that. Mm, maybe, maybe. I it's think time. there are a lot of people out there that are like, "Oh, I just want to donate so much." I really want to give those so guys. What am I going to do with this fifty dollars? <laughs> give it to the <laughs> Woodtalk guys. Someplace I could stick it. Exactly. All right. Well, let's jump into what's on the bench. I'll hit it up first. Um, you know, 
I was doing a lot of shop maintenance this past week, and finally, after ordering that helical head, the Shelix cutter head, like, I don't know, maybe a year ago, it's just been sitting there in the box, <laughs> uh, finally got around to installing the darn thing in the jointer, and, you know, I really anticipated this being a, like, two or three day affair, because anytime you touch your jointer, it's like, once it's calibrated and set up, leave it alone, you know, you don't want to mess with it, uh, but fortunately, it was much easier than I thought, had it done within a few hours, and that includes time to go to the auto parts store to rent a gear a gear puller because the the cheap one that I bought on Amazon just wasn't cutting it. So I was able to rent one and got everything done and reset up, and there really wasn't a whole lot to do because you're you're not messing with the tilt of the tables; you're just raising them up and down. So once it's reinstalled, all you have to do is set up your outfeed table to the proper height with the blades, and then reset your infeed table, and boom, you're done. So the install was great much easier than I thought it was going to be. And, uh, the results are awesome. Uh, Very it's, nice. it, it's glass smooth. I mean, off the jointer, I've just never really experienced that before. Right now the, the helical, that's the one you have there, right? The yes. helical, that's the right name. Well, it's a helical, it's referred to as either like a segmented cutter head or a helical head. And the company okay. that does, that makes them one of the most popular companies, bird, I guess the, mm-hmm. I don't know if they pronounce it weird, but B Y R D, uh, they make a brand called Shelix. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's the one that uh, at the same time that you were installing that or shortly after you installed, that's when I, I was playing around with that new that's thickness right. planer, which has the helical style cutter head. And there's a big difference because there's been there was a little bit of debate at one point about, you know, the true meaning of it. And the one that you have is an actual helical. So it kind of has that almost like they took the cutter head and twisted it slightly. Kind of. Yeah. 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 And that's I what it looks like. And I haven't really I, like I, I, evaluated these close enough to see. Okay, is it is it truly a helix or is it just some sort of a spiral with the uh, inserts on them? I don't I don't know if there's a big difference. Well, right. yours actually makes more of a shearing cut, correct? That's why it's a sheer helix. I, I don't um, know. As All compared the, to some of the other ones, yeah. <clears throat> and and I could be totally wrong here, but it, uh, it was my understanding that the the little carbide things still hit the wood kind of edge on. And yours is slightly skewed a little bit so that it shears the wood and that makes a cleaner cut, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. And you know what? We've got a question dealing with planers and helical heads later on. So maybe we can dig into that a little bit further. But ultimately, I think even if you regardless of whether it's this style or the other style, it's a big step above straight knives. Yeah. Right. And see, now I and I threw this onto your Facebook page and I never came back to see if anybody commented, but I'm a little confused as to why you need such a nice finish off the joiner. If you're just going to run it through the planer later, don't ask stupid questions, Shannon. <laughs> because you can, Shannon, and anybody well, else. That's and that's interested. a good enough answer, I suppose. But I was just wondering. If, well, if that's there was just I was missing. No, no, no. That is just one of the reasons. And for me, if you're the way I look at it is, if you're going into this helical head world and you want to get into that, I don't think that the jointer is your first thing that you would do that on. You're really the planer to me is the first place where you do that. And I have done that. That's I've had a helical head in my planer for a long time. To me, the jointer becomes that creature comfort upgrade. It's certainly not a uh, something that's absolutely required. Your work is not going to be like tremendously better unless uh, you're using a lot of figured woods. In that mm-hmm. case, yeah. it really is going to save you a lot of time, effort, and also material because you don't have to keep planing down to get rid of all that tear out that you got from your uh, from your jointer. So, so there's a lot of reasons why you might consider it. None of them, I think, are um, uh, sort of must must haves, but they're really nice to have things. So, right. the the better cut quality 
is a big one. Being able to cut those figured woods is another big issue. Uh, sound reduction is pretty substantial. Um, I, I have a little Radio Shack sound meter that I use because I don't really care about the sound myself. I always have hearing protection on, so it doesn't matter. But people were asking, so I figured, well, before I change this out, let me get the, the reading. There was a 30 decibel decrease in in the sound while running a board over the blades. That's pretty damn suspe- uh, substantial. Yes. Uh, so if you're in a basement shop, you know, and you've got family that's complaining about the noise you're making, dropping 30 decibels is going to be kind of a big deal. Uh, so that that's another thing. And um, the ease of replacement and recalibration and setup uh, just cannot be overstated. You will never have to do that whole thing with the magnetic jigs or you know trying to get your your <laughs> stupid dead center and all oh, that crap. God. Yeah. <laughs> that is just that's the worst part of the joiner setup, and that's gone once this process is done. Um, the other thing is these things. I, I believe a fine woodworking article gave a number. They they basically said that these uh, little heads, the little inserts, last about twenty times as long as their uh, straight knife counterparts. And, and I could tell you with my planer, I've had that for probably two to three years now. And I mean, people can see how much I use it uh, just by watching the show. And I use it quite a bit. I have yet to rotate them. Wow. And we're talking, yeah, we're talking years. Now I've got three more shots on each one of those inserts where if I rotate it, I get a fresh, perfectly clean edge. And then once that's, that's done, it's a, it's replacement time. So ultimately while these heads tend to be expensive at first, in the long run, uh, if you're a heavy user, I truly think there's a cost savings in the long run. Well, you know what's funny is when I did that thickness planer side-by-side thing, the straight cutting blades, I put in brand new ones. I mean, like, just open the package, drop them right in before I started filming, and I swear after the first or second pass, mm-hmm. a nick already started to form, and it yeah. was starting to do that line right down the center yeah. of the board or yeah. off to the side of the board. I'm like, are you kidding me? How did that happen? I mean, I haven't even run anything through. This is cleanish wood. Yeah, cleanish. Yeah, it cleanish. does not. It doesn't take long. And to answer, go back to circle back to your uh, initial question, Shannon. That's just one of the things. I don't think that's most people's primary motivator to do that on the jointer. I think it's just one of the multiple uh, motivators why you might want to do it. Uh, but again, none of them are fully what I would consider like must-have requirements. This is definitely a nice-to-have upgrade. I just want to know if you. If, if you bought that little decibel reader just like to try it on your son the truth is <laughs> you want to know why i bought it i thought it would be cool to have for various things because people are always concerned about noise in the shop so i had it for that but i also had it because i was really curious just how loud the air force jets were over my house <laughs> because I, I would talk to nicole about this i'm like you know i'm just curious like it does it reach a level that it's actually unsafe to be out there while those are, are going overhead so i've been trying to use it and, and i'm always late like you hear the jet and i'm like oh let me go get it and then the thing is gone so so i've never really gotten a measurement on them, but my curiosity i'm like i want to know how loud these things are oh that's funny. Well, yeah. we should have sent it to shannon last week and he could have measured the uh the sound with the dogs and the bird going back and forth <laughs> that's right woof tweet, woof, tweet. Uh, no bird this week thank goodness but you know with the the visit from the power company just a couple minutes ago the dog did go ballistic so hopefully he's asleep now yeah that'd be good um so yeah just to to finish this off the the gear puller is the one tool that i didn't have on hand to to complete the job like i said i had a cheap one from amazon so neat little tip uh if there are tools like that that you don't have and you probably will never need again go to your auto parts store i went to a o'reilly and apparently they lend out these tools. 
And I say lend, not rent, because I gave them my credit card. They put a $26 charge on there, basically. When I returned the tool, they refunded the entire thing. That's awesome. So, yeah, I've heard of a lot of places doing stuff like that. I mean, yeah. just if only we could get woodworking supply places to do that. <laughs> Can I borrow your jointer, please? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to be buying uh, 100 board feet of yeah. really gnarly, nasty maple. Uh, yeah. Can I borrow your jointer and your planer? And do you have any blades also? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, so that was really cool. I was very surprised, but it cost me nothing to just borrow this uh, gear puller and give it back the next day and done deal. Can't argue with that. That's cool. Yeah. So, uh, Shannon, how about you? Um, I uh, I recently built a pedestal table based on the Hancock Shaker Village little column with three legs tripod table thing. And in the process of filming it and kind of working out some of the kinks in the production, I almost made a second one just with practice pieces and trying out the joinery. So I figured, well, what the heck? I'll just go ahead and finish off the second one. Nice. And um, I, I was just dealing with like the little tiny details that we get into with projects, you know, blending the foot of the leg into the column. And it was, it's kind of those moments where it doesn't matter whether you're a power tool, hand tool, hybrid, whatever. Um, you, you just get so focused on like one square inch and you, you just spent like five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour on that one square inch and <laughs> you're just having a ball. It was just, that was kind of my weekend was, focused around, you know, four square inches essentially <laughs> with the chisel and a rasp and finessing this fit and getting the line to flow perfectly into the column and and um those little tiny things that are kind of the telltales between mass produced furniture and custom made furniture mm-hmm. that, you know, that that's really what kind of why we do this. And it was just one of those cool moments in the shop. Music playing, rasp in hand, chisel in the other hand, and juggling, you know, the chainsaw. You yeah, forgot the grape. You forgot the grape soda. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that was that was off on the corner of the bench. It was there. <laughs> it's just it's just really cool. It was really fun to really just kind of geek out on those custom details that no real. I don't want to say no person trying to make money doing this would do because obviously there are people that do it, but it's just so counterproductive or counterintuitive to. Um, getting furniture out the door and getting production made, you know? Yeah, um, totally. But it was so much fun. Unless you uh, unless you work for Bentley, as we'll find out in the next right, session. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> that explains, that's probably like half of the reason why it's as expensive as it is. It's yeah. like, normally we could just jump this, you know, dump this right out there, we'll be all set, but no, we're going to make you pay for it. Yeah, totally. All right, what about Sweet. you, Matt? Well, hey, this weekend I posted on Facebook that on Saturday, um, yeah, the couch called and I heated the call and I, I stayed there pretty <laughs> you much ordered I did, pizza I did and that was it <laughs> exactly and, and just for the record i ordered the pizza while sitting in the same exact spot that i had typed out those three or four references to the fact that i had never moved the whole entire day nice. so apparently i just really need to do that now when sunday rolled around that was a whole other thing because then it suddenly dawned on me oh my gosh all those plans i had made for saturday to get a project for a, an old family friend done um and again not quite as bad as Aiden's platform bed, but this one's getting pretty close to it. Uh, it. It's way behind. So I got into the shop yesterday, and all I needed to do was to make a face frame for kind of a a drawer opening, basically. It's going to have like a, a panel in there. And I ended up mauling the styles and rails not once, but twice <laughs> while trying to make this. So, so what the heck I, happened? It, it, was, it was just one of the, the first time around. I think some of that laziness from Saturday just kind of, of 
kind of bled over into it. Was it too and much so, uh, too much grease on your fingers from the pizza or what? It might have because I did have one <laughs> slice in, in one hand and I had a breadstick <laughs> in my mouth while at the same time trying to assemble this whole thing. <laughs> but really what it came down to is I just I didn't I didn't set up things the right way. Like I should have had some feather boards down on the router table to make sure that I was getting equal pressure on it so that it was it was going to run through, you know, ni- nice and even. And what ended up happening is I did kind of slip a little bit. Thankfully, my hands were nowhere near the uh, the spinning blades, but it ended up like extending open the the groove that was I was making. So I was using one of those rail and style bit systems. Okay. Yeah. And it just it, it kind of messed it up. So, of course, I'm like, well, I can. I can come up with a fix for this. I mean, I know how to do stuff like this. And I think I, the fix actually made it worse. Oh, man. <laughs> no. So, yeah, and it's just kind of to the point. I'm like, you know what? I'm spending so much time trying to fix this. The best thing to do is I still have enough of the material over here on the side, my, my oops factor that I build into everything. I'll grab that. And I will just simply redo the whole thing and and stop the frustration from there. Mulligan. And so I, I started to re, redo the whole thing and not quite a repeat. Well, pretty close. <laughs> so wait, so is this stuff where you you do it and you go, you know, afterwards you go, you know what? I know the right way to do this. I should have done this, and you can kind of just blame yourself for being lazy or whatever. Or was this one of those times when it was actually a challenge that you couldn't figure out a better way to do it? It was. It was. It was definitely the first one. I knew. I knew exactly what I was doing wrong. And I and it was just pure laziness, maybe yeah, yeah. that I just didn't want to set it up that way because I'm like I'm already running behind. I know if I if I do this one thing, it will take care of everything without having to be extra cautious, <laughs> right? Okay. And so yeah, no. Uh, by the time I got done, if I would have just been extra cautious, it would have taken me half the time to get the dang thing done. So I still have yet a third set of rails and styles. Thankfully, it's kind of small, and once again. I always build in that extra, extra oops factor. So, I, so maybe maybe a new theme for uh, uh, safety day coming up in May is uh, how to woodwork when lazy. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to get like a uh, a couch router table or a couch workbench. I still want to see the video that explains how to eat a pizza and a breadstick while running something over across the uh, <laughs> across the router table. Well, let me tell you, I do a lot of close ups of the actual work itself, so you might be surprised how often that actually happens. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Cool. Well, let's jump into what's new. We got a couple of cool links to share with you here. First one is from Dusty. He says, here's a good video regarding the strength of dado joints. This almost could be a kickback from last week uh, where we were discussing, I believe there was a question about the depth of the dado, uh, Mm -hmm. and we gave our opinions on that. So this is from the Down to Earth Woodworker, and um, doesn't he write something for the Highland Woodworking Newsletter? If I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, he, he does that. Yeah. And then he also has a show over at YouTube that oh. I believe they sponsor. Okay, cool. So down to worth, down to worth, Udworker. <laughs> nice. Oh, yes. That's his uh, other show that he does. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's a dado depth torture test. And, you know, in the tradition, the longstanding tradition of joint tests, you basically set up a bunch of joints, tie some weights to them, and he uses a bucket and some building bricks and uh, see, basically looks at the different depths. Usually, I think he looked at a quarter, three-eighths, and a half, if I'm not mistaken, and mm-hmm. has some surprising results with it. And as is always the case with these joint tests, while they're interesting, they're generally, I hate to say it, but they're generally meaningless because ultimately the real-life situation is not just a random piece of wood hanging off of one single joint. It's a piece of wood that's in two joints and supported on both sides. So I think without any of these joint tests, I think the take-home message is just how strong everything that we do actually is. You know, not these singular joints and how weak they are, but
But ultimately, when you put that shelf into two dados on the sides of a, a cabinet, it would take substantially more weight than what he's using in this experiment to actually make that joint fail. Right. You know? So it's kind of these joint tests always make me feel better about what we do, regardless of what your dado depth is. It's all going to be strong enough to get the job done for a for a load of books. You're not talking about unless you keep bricks on your shelves which yeah. most of us don't do. Uh, go ahead and put that elephant up there. That should be no problem <laughs> at all. Those are a couple of strong dados. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> it sounds a, like a challenge to me. There you go. <laughs> yeah. We'll add another pet to your menagerie. Well, you just, you know, if, if, you, if you do work for a circus and you're building one of those things that the elephants stand on and balance on, you might want to be concerned about your data depth. <laughs> you know? uh, but seriously, it's a good video. It's fun to watch. It's always fun to see people breaking wood uh, with bricks. So uh, give, definitely give that a look. I want the dado test where they throw it off the roof. <laughs> That's always a good one, too. <laughs> the David Letterman dado test. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice. All right. Hey, well, we have another one. Th- this next video, I-, I-, I often wonder, is this what it would be like if, say, the three of us had recorded this show when we were much younger? Maybe like, you know, when we were Mateo's age, maybe a little bit older <laughs> when we have a little bit stronger grasp of vocabulary. But at the yeah. same time, you know, we-, we do talk over each other and they did this quite often. Uh I believe this is from uh, Who is John Gull? Actually, I believe that's the the website or the YouTube channel that you're going to find this at. Send us a hilarious lesson on woodworking safety. Kids snippets, wood shop safety as imagined by kids. And so this is completely voiced over by a couple of young guys. I believe they are probably like about five, six years old. And it is completely acted by a couple of adults. One, one looks like an adult. <laughs> one is and, bald, uh, shaved bald. So it, it's the irony and the, the, the whole presentation is hilarious. <laughs> it is. And I, and I love it because the, the whole entire thing is just these two kids who are apparently having a conversation about how they imagine this would go. And it's just it's done perfect. I, I absolutely love this. And anybody that you know has been around kids when they are trying to explain something <laughs> that you know that they really don't know much about. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Let me let me play a quick uh, clip. I don't know if it'll be lost in translation when you can't see it, but it sounds funny to me. If you have a saw, be very, 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 because very. he almost might cut us in half. He can cut your finger, your hand, your nose. No, 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 no. I know how to use a saw because I'm a builder, too. I know how to use a saw because I'm a builder, too. (laughs) Wait, was that a snippet from the video? I thought that was one of our last episodes where you and Shannon were going back and forth over hand tool versus power tool. That actually might be from our show. (laughs) Seriously, when you you look at it that way, it's like, man, we're already doing this. (laughs) Yeah, we beat them to it. Uh, Yeah, these are funny. And the whole channel is uh, kid snippets, basically. And it's all done in a very similar fashion, but other topics, too. Uh, Really funny YouTube channel, for sure. Yeah, it's really good. Um, let's see. <clears throat> this is a, I don't know if Bill sent this to us or the video was by Bill. Cause I think the video is by Bill as well, but he did a, a video on the creation of shop made retractable casters for his power tools. And there's some pretty cool stuff in here actually mm-hmm. for, um, anybody who has a garage shop where everything needs to be mobile and, you know, moved out of the way to pull in a car. He has taken every single thing in his shop and built this like kick stop, um, retractable caster mechanism and it's slightly different every single one what i got was overwhelmed with when watching this is this is a gentleman of retirement age who has a incredibly immaculate shop like <laughs> yes. everything this is obviously someone who has honed and rehoned his shop organization over 40 some years everything has its place everything is put away perfectly neatly 
Um, and it, it's you could see just incredible pride of his little clubhouse as he's taking you through it. It was just a thoroughly enjoyable video and some really cool ideas on how he uh, all, you know, just scraps around the shop created these retractable casters. So check it out. Do you think he I has like any uh, comments that say you talk too much? <laughs> <laughs> or, or my favorite, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I love that one. That one is so original. And for those who don't know, I say that with sympathy because uh, the three of us tend to get that a lot on YouTube that we talk too much. So whenever I see someone who has a very talking head sort of long video, I just wonder, do they get the same crap that we get or is it just are we just lucky? Yeah, More I always want to say they probably do. They're just smart enough to edit it out. Yeah, that's true. They're deleting <laughs> We're the, the idiots that publish that. <laughs> right. Cool. All right. We got another one here from Jonathan. He says, found this little gem that shows the woodworking involved in producing a Bentley. This is what I referenced earlier in the show. Uh, great little video that shows the interior of these Bentley vehicles and just how precisely they're manufactured but at the same time there is a craftsman's touch and they have a wood shop at the bentley factory that just goes through all of the veneering process they show how they use um, uh, root uh, burl for this stuff and just amazing what they do in-house and it's a great marriage of classic craftsmanship with a lot of the finer details and inlays that are done uh, mixed with uh, the highest technology you can imagine basically parts going into a machine and it has this uh, I've never really seen anything like it, but it's uh, you, they put all these custom molded parts into this machine and it just cuts them. It's like a, a CNC that goes in every possible direction. It, it right. replaces like it, the arm comes down, the little head goes and it replaces its cutter head with a different cutter head on its own. And then just yeah. goes back to the workpiece and continues shaping it. Um, amazing, amazing stuff. So if you I saw, I saw something like that in the <laughs> matrix, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> harvesting those little baby globes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's totally batteries. Totally sci-fi looking, uh, but really, really amazing. And you could see uh, you would need that kind of precision if you're doing an automobile and you're using natural materials. It's very hard to to do those by hand. But uh, uh, to me, it's amazing how much of this work is actually done by hand by really qualified craftsmen. So tell well, me you didn't the- drool a little bit though when they went into the veneer room and they were like sorting through oh, just my gosh. enormous stacks of oh, veneer yeah. flitches. Seriously, insane stuff. Yeah, and and. and they've got their whole inventory and they show the, the, uh, little, uh, what do you call it? Forklift going out to pick up the next root ball to bring it in so they could start peeling off veneer from it. Yep. Yeah. I, it cracked me up when you see the, like the CNC and all the, all the high tech equipment that they're using. And then you see all the guys standing by hand. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. Well, and they even said like this one particular part required seven, seven hours or something from one individual to do. And then he's got 30 of them to do for, for the car, you know? So it's like, no wonder these things are a little bit pricey. This is right, one time yeah. where, where it's almost, it's definitely a justified, <laughs> a justified uh, hey, expense. Hey, Ralph, you need to hurry up. Uh, Lady Gaga is going to be here any day now to pick that up. Um, <laughs> you need to, you need to pick it up, buddy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let's move into our poll of the week by our good body. Good body. Whoa. Tom. Whoa, hey, easy there. I like you, Tom. That one. I like you, but I don't really. Yeah, Tom is like married, you. and I don't know if she'd appreciate this the, <laughs> yeah. the competition. Oh boy. Anyway, Tom asked the question: What time of day do you like to do your woodworking? And here's the thing: truthfully, I wonder how many of us actually have that luxury of deciding what time of day we do our woodworking. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, I think if you're working nine to five, you're just you're night and weekends if you can get it. Uh, but he laid out all the different times in uh, in Tom fashion, and uh, I'm not going to go through them all because actually it's it's kind of evenly weighted. The interesting thing is, let's just show the ones that have the least votes. Early in the morning, from four to seven, 
has one vote. And the wee small hours of the morning, uh, basically midnight to 4 a.m., I would I'd say that's pretty expected. That only has four votes. And the rest is fairly evenly distributed between the afternoon, late morning, early evening, and uh, mid-evening type time frame. So uh, as more votes come in, we just recently published this this morning, uh, have 109 votes now. But as they keep coming in, it'll be interesting to see what this profile looks like. You know, I'm, you know I'm, it's... I was going to say the, the those first couple of uh, uh, time ranges that you mentioned, you only need to do them once before you discover that you will never be allowed to do them again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this right. doesn't work. Oh, the baby woke up. Crap. All right. Well, it was interesting because I've actually had a, a couple of days off. Um, we were going to take a little trip and ended up the last minute not doing it. And mm. I just decided to take the days anyway and stay home and work in the shop. And it's interesting when you suddenly are not limited, um, how you kind of fall under your own little natural circadian rhythm. Yeah, and I yeah. discovered that I do work much better at night. Um, I, I just can't get like focused before <laughs> like 3 p.m. Yeah. You know, oh, and look, if, a bird. if I try to, I'll be up early and I'm like in the shop and I end up like sharpening a chisel. And like doing nothing and just kind of piddling around and I'm like, screw this. And I go back inside and I sit down in front of the computer or I take the dog for a walk or do something else. I go into the shop at like six o'clock at night and it's just like laser focused until like four in the morning. I think if we if we had like a hidden camera in Shannon's shop, you go in there maybe at 11 a.m. and he's sitting there putting dreadlocks into Alex's hair. <laughs> That's not far off, actually. Uh, that'd be great. You know, the funny thing is I'm much more productive during the day, but I have found and almost by necessity, there just isn't enough time in my workday anymore. So after uh, my son comes home, we do the whole family thing. Once he's in bed, it's usually around 7 30 8 o'clock there are days as long as everybody's getting enough sleep in the house that i'll go back in at about 7 30 8 o'clock and i have a second wind and you know throw on some good music and just kind of get it's not as long as i'm not tired it can be an extremely productive time for me to be in there from uh like eight o'clock to ten o'clock and just get a little bit more work done Mm -hmm. works for me my worst problem is when anybody's in the house, then I suddenly become a social butterfly. What are you doing? What are you going to do? Hey, what's you, going what we should on? Do? Let's go over here and check this out. You know, I read this article online. <laughs> Little father-daughter bonding time. Exactly. I'm sure she loves that. <laughs> All right. Let's move into our kickback. This one here is from Jay. And Jay, I'm going to uh, give you a little apology ahead of time. Sometimes we use a kickback as a means to vent our frustrations on the world. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, this, you know, we're, we're, we'll do our best not to be to be mean about it. But, you know, this is definitely an opinionated topic and uh, we should have some fun with this. Uh, but just know that we love you and we appreciate your feedback. Absolutely. Keep it coming in. That just said, me. you're at. No, just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in the, he says in the last episode, one of uh, one of the Chris's, remember we had three Chris's at once, uh, asked about a magnetic dovetail guide. And he specifically asked about the Veritas model. Matt and Shannon both referred to using these as a crutch and suggested just practice. The one thing you both seem to ignore is that many of us hobbyists do not have the time to dedicate I'm sorry, to dedicate to practice, nor do we make dovetails frequently enough to keep the muscle memory necessary. I struggled with cutting accurate dovetails until purchasing a magnetic guide from David Barron. Using the guide not only increases accuracy, it also greatly increases speed because you don't need to mark near as many lines. I could have spent a lot of time practicing. Instead, I would refer prefer to spend my time building furniture in the same episode where you decree the use of magnetic yeah i'm good I'm magnetic good at, good at this job guys um <laughs> the use of magnetic guides you also talk about creating plywood angle masters and complicated router jigs for chair building how is using a guide really any different 
they are all just tools to create accurate joints. My advice to Chris would be that if the dovetail guide helps you build better projects, go for it. The goal is a tight-fitting dovetail joint. How it is accomplished is up to each individual woodworker. So before I, I, I unleash the hounds, being you two guys, uh, just, just a few clarifications. Number one, Shannon and Matt do woodwork as hobbyists. Both of them hold down day jobs. And although we do this podcast and it may sound like we do nothing but woodwork all day, I'm actually the only person in this trio that spends all day focused on woodworking. And, and that said, half of my job, more than half, is spent sitting at a computer because I'm doing everything for the website or editing. Um, so in actuality, our shop time is Okay, I'll, I'll leave myself out of that. The shop time for Matt and Shannon is as much of a hobbyist shop time as uh, as a straight hobbyist who doesn't do a podcast. I mean, you guys have nine to five jobs. So uh, you have just as much time as everyone else to practice your joinery and practice whatever you want to practice. So the reality is if you guys, the way I look at it is if, uh, you know, morons like us can figure it out. <laughs> I was going to say it if you didn't. Yeah. Uh, if we can do it, then we just have the natural expectation that other people with a little bit of practice can accomplish this as well. Um, the other thing is, and this happens a lot in, in our kickbacks and, and just kind of feedback that we get. Um, people listen to the show, and I guess it's just the natural thing that happens when you listen to three people in a dialogue like this back and forth, is they tend to assume we're the same person. So when Shannon and Matt say something where this thing is a crutch, and then I, a few minutes later, say how great plywood angle masters are, they're actually different people saying these things. Um, so we tend to be attributed all to having kind of the same opinion, and we, we kind of get lumped in together. So I do want to clarify that I was mentioning how great these plywood masters are, um, but ultimately, if we want to dig into the details here, I think a plywood setup gauge is a very different thing than a what is effectively training wheels for your saw. Right. Right. So, so, uh, so let's well, dig more in. More importantly, it's a, it's creating a joint that doesn't have to be replicated somewhere else. Yeah. An angle master is done so that you can replicate that angle somewhere else. Yeah. Repeat The angle of your dovetail is, is not important because you're transferring that onto your pen board or vice versa. Right. Um, it doesn't affect anything else. Yeah. So they're, they're apples and oranges, in my opinion. I agree. The setup jig and a, a jig that, I mean, and at the same time, you might think about a dovetail jig. Well, dovetail jig is more like the Veritas thing that he's using. And don't, don't get us wrong. I mean, I, I think I could speak for all of us when I say whatever makes you happy. But, mm -hmm. but the problem is someone emailed us asking, should he buy what effectively is not, the, not necessarily the right tool for the job to accommodate this Veritas jig? So when someone's considering buying a tool, the, the, he was looking at the larger tenon saws, which really aren't the best tool for the job. So it, it, when, when we're asked our opinion on that, our opinion is, well, maybe you should practice. Get practice so you can use the right saw and free yourself up from that. That's not to say that what he's doing is wrong in any way. He can do whatever he wants to do if it makes him happy. I think we're all in agreement on that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as a woodworker, we think he's looking to do both get good dovetails, but also become a better woodworker. You know, exactly. ultimately, we assume you know, that that's part of his goal. Yeah. One of my things with, with this kickback is, Jay, I, I am going to agree and disagree with you, obviously, on this. I, and quite honestly, uh, you can easily call me a hypocrite because hypocrite. there are some devices like a honing jig. I use a honing jig when it comes to sharpening. Now, Shannon is a huge advocate for freehand sharpening, and I say, whatever. 
<laughs> and then there's also the whole thing with the uh, debate with Shannon and I going back and forth on, say, the uh, the jointer fence. Again, it's very easy with a lot Ooh, of practice. We haven't to, done that one in a while. Oh, I know. Yeah. I thought I would. I was bringing that up when I was writing this whole thing. I've got like three or four pages of uh, my rebuttal to the J. But when it comes down to it, yeah, I, I agree with everything that Mark just said. There's really not too much more to add to it. Uh, if if it works for you, fine. Go ahead and use it. If it if you want us to maybe step up your game a little bit, or like you said, Jay, or, uh, Chris was asking us our opinion, and quite honestly, that that's the way I feel about that particular device. Well, before I let uh, Shannon uh, say his piece on this, your honing guide analogy I think is a good one, because this is not just should I use a honing guide or not. This is should I construct, just hypothetical, should I construct this weird complicated thing to sharpen this one fancy chisel that I have that fits on my honing guide so I can get a sharp edge? Or should I just do it freehand? And I think if that was the question, uh, even though you and I both, uh, Matt, use honing guides, if you're talking about going to this next level to do something to accommodate the honing guide, if the alternative is to just learn how to do it freehand, we might both say the same thing. Yeah, just do it freehand. Don't go through all this trouble to accommodate the jig when you could just learn a freehand technique and, and actually get more skill as a result of it as well. Yes, absolutely. it's actually a really apt metaphor because that's <clears throat> exactly how I got into freehand sharpening. Mm-hmm. There was a carving gouge that there was just no way, I, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking, how do I make this work? And I was like, oh, damn it. Let me just try to do it freehand. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, this is not as hard as I thought it was going to be. And then I the more I did it, the more I thought, well, and I used one of my regular chisels and I built up that muscle memory just you know, doing those carving gouges. And then suddenly it just didn't make sense to use the honing guide on the other stuff on the straight blades. Yeah. So that was my, my training wheels, if you will, my, not even training wheels, my catalyst to move towards freehand honing. I still have a honing guide in the drawer of my sharpening. You know, I haven't quite brought myself to get rid of it yet because there may be that time when, you know, my hands just won't do what my head wants and I just need to fix that edge and get back to work. So it's still there, but you know, just just saying cold turkey go into freehand honing, I don't recommend anybody do that. Yeah. But it takes a lot of practice and you need some sort of catalyst. And there is that kind of watershed moment when you can say, okay, I'm going to invest in becoming a better woodworker or I'm just going to find a, a way to, to, to make this easier and add a lot more work. And yeah. it just doesn't make sense. Well, in the process of making dovetails, I guess it, it might depend a little bit on whether you go pins or tails first. But as you, you mentioned before, a lot of times the angles, the irregularities that you have or the lack of perfection in your sawing technique is adjusted for by the process. So you, it doesn't really matter if you're two degrees off on that angle as long as it's fairly straight. You then transfer that to your workpiece, make your second set of cuts, and that's where things have to be accurate. But if you're not accurate, stay a little away from the line and go ahead and use a chisel to, to refine it. So there are workers rounds uh, that don't rely on those sort of guides, but the process itself kind of allows for some of those mistakes. It allows you to to go a little bit off uh, as long as you're able to transfer those lines accurately. So I don't know. I, ultimately, I don't think there sh- there's anything wrong with anybody doing anything in woodworking. That's not what we're here for is to preach a certain type of woodworking that actually would go very much against what, what at least I personally believe. I think everybody can do what what they want to do. So I hope we don't come across like that. But when someone asks us our opinion, we just assume you want to be a better woodworker. You want more skill under your belt. And that means the, the fewer of these guides and helpers you use, I think the better. And I'm just as guilty as everyone else. I use a dovetail jig. Uh, I use a honing guide and someday I would love to be a better woodworker that doesn't need to use those things ever, but I probably always will. (laughs) 
Yeah. So if you want to ask us, you know, can you use that that jig or, or you know, using that jig, does that make you a bad woodworker? We're going to say no. Um, and then I might also say if you want to purchase one, here's a link that you can use that's available <laughs> on my website. Use my affiliate code, please. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, I have to make a confession here. before. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we move on, um, Shannon, you know, the, uh, the whole thing with the uh, freehand sharpening um, I, I, I've been freehand sharpening some of my uh, spoke shave blades because they're so small and I don't feel like putting them in that fancy schmancy <laughs> thingy to get to use the, uh, the, the jig. Traitor! So, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm really, I'm, I'm sorry, Mark and uh, Shannon. Don't, don't gloat too much. Hey, there are things that I'll freehand sharpen. If it's just too much trouble, it's, you know, I can do it. I'm just not that great at it because I don't do it all the time. Exactly. Oh, yes. okay. Well, let's move That's into- why you don't see me use spoke shaves a lot. <laughs> I'm just uh, oh yeah that's the other alternative just don't use that tool anymore exactly there you go. <laughs> all right well thanks for that Jay we appreciate the feedback and sorry if we come across a little bit uh, angry mean no I don't think so we do you know we respect yeah. your opinion and we hope that you respect ours as well and, exactly. and and for the record I only recommended the complicated router jig for chair building because I knew that the person who asked the question didn't want me to say just <laughs> cut it with a mortise chisel <laughs> all right exactly <laughs> I don't recommend using complicated router jigs that's why I use hand tools because I don't like making complicated router jigs yep. and routers scare me they do and Matt as well his hands uh, tremble. Yes. His hands tremble they every time. They scare me because of Matt, mostly. <laughs> yeah, my hands are just shaking right now thinking about it. Matt is just one big public safety announcement. Mm-hmm. All right, we got a voicemail here from our buddy Nick. It's about a minute and 45, so sit back, crack a beer, and uh, have a listen. Hey, guys. This is uh, Nick Brown in Northern Ohio. Uh, the humidity swings here are rather drastic, and it's causing a few finishing problems. I'm wondering if you guys have any ideas here. Um, I've done three tables this last year with um, breadboard ends. And all of them finished with, you know, five or six coats um, of at least of uh, gentle finishes, uh, polyurethane. Um, now, one of the tables is, is just it's the breadboard and the regular t- and the rest of the tables completely flush across the surface. And when the, when the wood movement happens, um, it, it, you know, the finish will break along that line, but it's not real visible. The other two are green and green pieces, um, one being the blanket chest and one being a green and green piece I did for a hall table for ourselves. Um, and that little lip there between the surface of the table, uh, the tabletop and the breadboard end, because of the height difference, um, the polyurethane, when you do a finish, tends to kind of wick up into there and create a little bridge to the surface tension of the polyurethane when you're finishing. And when the wood moves, it splits along that line and causes a little bit of separation between the wood and the polyurethane itself. Um, and this creates, you know, about a, you know, maybe a centimeter wide 
white line along the you know the inner edge of the breadboard where the polyurethane is no longer adhered to the wood itself, which of course is really really annoying. Um, have you guys ever run into this problem? And uh, someone, you know, probably someone other than Mark, since you have wood, no wood movement where you are. Um, but have you run into this problem? And do you happen to have a solution for it? Um, do, you, do you score it with a nice line so you pre-break that wood movement, or I don't know. Any ideas you have have would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. All right, great question, Nick. And I'll tell you what, I actually do have quite a bit of uh, wood movement. I've um, had some breadboard end projects that really surprised me with how much movement, and it screwed up my uh, little ebony splines that I had in the corner, the green and green style splines. Um, oh, you ebony splines. I know, I know. And it was uh, it, it, it kind of sucks because now they're all indented and it looks goofy. Uh, so yeah, we do have wood movement to be concerned with. So with breadboards, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, that's where the end of your tabletop has a cross piece of material that sort of uh, protects the edges, makes it a little more decorative, helps keep the table flat. And uh, I think it looks great. But you have a situation where your top is still going to expand and contract. So what he's seeing is the, uh, the finish he's putting on there is splitting as the table moves back and forth. So, uh, you know, one solution is to stop making so many damn breadboards, Nick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Just get rid of the breadboard. Now, um, you know, the thing is, I don't know that there's really a whole lot you can do about it because the wood is going to move and the finish is going to split. So I think his suggestion of possibly uh, knifing it ahead of time, if you could be very precise about it and split it so that at least when it splits, it looks a little bit more regular and, and a little more predictable. So there's not uh, you know, sort of a tearing or stretched finish look there. Uh, but one, the reason I don't have too much of a problem with this is not because the wood isn't moving. It's because I don't put five to six coats on these pieces. So if he's either brushing it on or even wiping a nice thick coat each time, five to six coats, even of armor seal is quite a bit. So for yeah. me, you know, I usually settle on about three coats, four at the most. So it's a little bit more of that closer to the wood look. There's not enough finish built up for it to look like there's something stretching and breaking. Right. So he may, uh, who knows? I mean, everybody uses different number of coats for various reasons. Uh, but one thing you might consider trying is using fewer coats, getting that closer to the wood look. And you may find that the finish just kind of looks a little bit better, uh, especially on the green and green ones where you have that raised portion. If you have a thinner coat, you can kind of wipe away a lot of that excess so it doesn't pull. Don't let it pull because that's going to be a problem. Um, but go with a slightly thinner finish and that might be another solution. Nice. Do you guys ever experience this with, with your projects at all? No. I'm just trying to think. I've got a, a dining table with breadboard um, and I've got one downstairs. And, you know, granted, we're pretty much climate controlled, you know, all year round here because the humidity mm -hmm. is just oppressive in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm just, I'm not going to say there is no wood movement. I don't think there's been that much just because the house stays pretty constant now. Okay. But I am, I'm with you, Mark, I'm much more of a closer to wood finish. I use, I rarely use film finishes. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I do, it's heavily dilute. So I'm, you know, using more penetrating finishes that aren't going to cause that hard film over the surface and when i do it's usually something like shellac which i think is more pliable than polyurethane uh i don't i don't, I don't think it is uh, mm, shellac really? is fairly, okay. is it more brittle yeah. it's right, fairly well, brittle that, that shoots that theory never mind yeah i, I, would, I would think the uh, armor seal next one please <laughs> i think the armor well, seal well, would when be i more use flexible. armor seal i think i usually at most go with four coats usually i stop around three and that third coat is like the satin one that goes over top of the gloss ones right right yeah, I agree. Um, all right. Well, let us know how it works out if you, <laughs> if you try something new, Nick, and uh, report back. 
All right, let's move into our emails. Got one here from Jens. He says, uh, hey, guys, I'm looking to get a 15-inch planer, specifically the Grizzly G0453. Oh, my gosh. I love the G0453. Isn't that a great one? It's so much better than the 0452. Oh, don't even get me started on the G0453A. Terrible. Uh, He says, is there a a different brand that has a 15-inch planer with a significantly better feature set? They all look pretty darn close and identical to me. And my question, second question, is there a noticeable difference between the Bird Shelix cutter head and the Grizzly spiral head that comes on the Grizzly G0453PX? Oh, not the PX. I know, right? Mm. <laughs> I don't mind installing the bird head, but if it'll never be able to, uh, if I'll never be able to tell the difference, I don't want to waste my time. So I thought this was a timely question for me since I was thinking about Shelix heads and helical cutter heads and all that jazz. I feel like we just had a conversation about this. Almost did. And, uh, <laughs> you know, first of all, his question about planar features. Once you get into that sort of industrial style, a lot of cast iron, big beefy kind of planar, the feature set is kind of constant across the board. You know, you're going to have your, your, your similar in-feed and out-feed rollers, your anti-kickback uh, little dealies in there. Um, the cutter head is something you might have like speed adjustments so that the feed rate is actually, uh, it, a lot, like mine has a two-stage, so you can have a slower and a faster feed rate. Um, you know, maybe there's a mobile base on it or, or you know, little little creature comfort things. But ultimately, the feature set is, is as you noticed, is pretty identical across the board. What's going to make the difference between these tools is potentially power, uh, quality of the parts that are used to make it. Uh, you know, so that, that, that's really where they're going to save their money. But the general feature set is constant across the board because these are just the things you need to have that style of planer to be functional. Um, you know, the other thing you might find is like a digital gauge for the height. I don't find that to be a very helpful thing in my shop. So I don't, I don't have one. Uh, but that is something you might find on the more expensive units. Uh, the other question was about noticing a difference between the Shelix cutter head and the one that Grizzly supplies with theirs. They certainly look a little bit different, and I don't know. I mean, I'll be honest here. I haven't compared them, so I, I can't tell you if there's a major difference between the two. Uh, I would imagine that even if, let's say, the the bird version, uh, the Shelix, is actually better in some way, I don't know how much better it would be. You're still getting that same style. You still have the replaceable inserts. Chances are all these companies are using industry standard inserts um, that that they all buy. Even, you know, these are probably very similar to the things on the tips of the uh, turning tools uh, by Easy Wood Tools, right? So this is, they're they're not going to use proprietary parts for that. Um, And those cutter heads are really what makes uh, where the rubber meets the road or where the blade meets the wood. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I don't know uh, from firsthand experience how those compare, but my gut tells me it's probably not dramatically worse, you know, to say like, oh, don't get it because it's not it's not the bird brand. Yeah, um, I think what you said earlier in the show, the dramatic difference is going from straight knife to yeah. replaceable cutter head. And then once you get there, it's like, yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal to go. Yep. We use we actually um, I. I don't remember who the manufacturer is, but you are right. A lot of this stuff is like a, a standard thing that's made, and a lot of these companies use the same one, and they kind of put their brand on it. But the companies that manufacture them manufacture them specifically for Grizzly or specifically for Powermatic, and they they put the the company branding on that cutter head, but it gets made at pretty much the same factory or factories, right? Um, and they can all say, you know, this is ISO nine thousand, and it's you know it's it's the Powermatic brand and the Grizzly brand. But when when the uh, what did you say earlier when the blade meets the wood? Yep, I like that. That is what I when said. the blade <laughs> when, you, when you really when the come down to it, it's all made by 
the same people. And we use similar cutter heads, obviously bigger diameter, more industrial strength cutter heads, but they all come from the same place. And as far as I can tell, they look pretty much the same as the Grizzly as far as the orientation of the teeth and everything. Yeah. So, I mean, they work just fine, you know, with hundreds of thousands of linear feet of molding a day running through them. They work just fine. Yeah. It's kind of the technology you're buying into and the brand might be secondary, but if anybody has specific experience that uh, might be able to tell us, even if anyone from that, that makes the Shelix, if you guys know some competitive advantages, your, your heads have over uh, what some of these companies are installing, uh, you know, from the factory. I seem to remember that that sound difference was one of the things that the Shelix said. Oh, really? Because the, the, the slightly angled action, maybe it, it makes more of a shushing noise. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, you know, when I was at uh, Steel City headquarters back in December, that was one big thing that when they were talking about the helical style cutter head, because it was funny because some of the people that were coming in kept emphasizing it's not a true helical style. It's not a true helical cutter head. It's a helical style cutter head. And when you compare side by side the the Shelix with even the one that they're showing in the image for uh, the uh, G0453PX, You'll notice that for sure, the way that the they're oriented, it is kind of like that, kind of more helical than Ish. the uh, the grizzly one. And again, yeah, because it's on an angle. So I think that's that's the big thing. Yeah, I would be really curious though to know though how much. Yeah, what is the what's the super super detail? What exactly well, somebody, makes the somebody listening has to know. So you know, leave us a voicemail if you can, or, or write us an email. Yeah. Let us know what what the practical difference is between these, and if it's worth, let's say, buying one and upgrading, or jumping to a brand, for instance, like the Powermatic uh, that actually comes with the uh, Bird brand uh, helical heads in them. You know, so right. you might want to calculate your costs that way versus buying one without and installing it yourself. You may just be better off buying one that comes with it. All right. You know, one thing in reference to kind of the difference of the planers you'd mentioned earlier or just industrial tools you'd mentioned earlier about whether it comes with a mobile base or not. And that's always been kind of a key thing for me, mm-hmm. having that built-in mobile base. But recently I've been rethinking that because have you ever noticed how they put the the retractable caster on the wrong axis? So like – you think of a jointer, it's, it's attached on the end. And I realize it's probably more for stability purposes, but what that means is you, <laughs> you, you move the jointer front to back along the long axis. And most of us like to push it up against a wall. Yep. Yes. So it makes it really difficult to pull away from the wall because you have to kind of rock it and make like a 20 point turn. You got Yeah. You got to parallel park it. <laughs> right. And exactly. you know, the back end of the fence is always bumping into it. If they were to switch that and move it 90 degrees so that the joiner just pulled straight out from the wall, it would be so much more efficient. Oh, yeah. And the same thing with planers, um, especially when you get into bigger planers that essentially have five foot long beds, um, you still have to do that parallel parking thing. And I've really started rethinking that. Whereas if I built my own or used, you know, the kits or whatever, where you supply the wood and the casters and everything and just rotate it 90 degrees, it would be so much more efficient. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so sense. So it's just got me thinking because a lot of times you pay maybe a little bit more for that built in mobile base. Mm-hmm. And especially companies like Grizzly, they usually have one that doesn't have that mobile base and it, it's a little bit cheaper. Um, right. Might be worth like, considering. I w- I'm not as quick to jump on the whole built in mobile base thing anymore because of that fact. 
Right. I think what it is is actually part of that mobile base was worked out with the uh, president's uh, uh, council on health because they know that it's the only exercise that woodworkers are going to get. <laughs> yeah, push this around this for a while. So, yeah. You know, I have to say um, I use the HTC brand mobile base. I, I needed one for the shop. Um, really easy to put together, very sturdy, and you kind of have your choice of where you want your rotating wheels. But if you're using that for one of these tools, you could just have them both of the, the rotating ones in the front, uh, and it should be very easy to push forward and back, which is uh, you know much better than what, what a lot of times if you buy the branded version that goes with these tools, you're limited in the way Shannon's talking about. So these aftermarket uh, uh, mobile bases are actually uh, really, really good. So take a look at those. Sweet. All right, Matt, you're up. All right. Hey, this question came in from Miller and Miller says, what should I cover milk paint with for outdoor protection that won't change the tone too much? And how do I prep it all? Samples I have touched up seem very rough. And Miller also, I believe, pointed out that he's talking about uh, the actual milk paint, milk paint and not the general finish milk paint. Mm -hmm. So what I end up doing is I turn to (laughs) the uh, milk paint style milk paint. (laughs) There we go. Uh, so I, I turned to our, our friend over at the Old Fashioned Milk Paint Company, Aunt Bo. She's helped us out before, or Tabo. And I'm so sorry, I always end up slaughtering your name. Uh, and I asked her this question, and she wrote back saying, you know, the issue with painting milk paint outdoors is that it can water spot white spots if it gets wet and is, has not been sealed. Of course, that is not an issue with white milk paint, as you wouldn't notice any spotting. Otherwise, uh, it does need an exterior sealer, say something like Thompson's water sealer or something very similar. Unfortunately, I don't know of any exterior sealers that wouldn't deepen the color somewhat. You could always maybe lighten the color before applying it to make up for the deepening that the sealer will give you. Make a few samples on some scrap wood and see if you can lighten the color with white and see how the sealer affects that color. As for the texture go, as far as the texture goes, uh, that's just the na- nature of milk paint. It, it does not contain any plasticizers or anything like that in it, like an acrylic or latex paint. So it does not feel as smooth to the touch. Burnishing the painted surface with steel wool or maybe a Scotch-Brite pad will make the surface feel smoother. And of course, if you apply a clear sealer over the milk paint, it will feel much smoother. Uh, again, it's just the nature of this natural paint product. Hmm. I so, wonder if uh, like a water-based exterior, I mean, there's not a whole lot of them out there, but like uh, General Finishes Exterior 405, I believe is a water-based product you might check out. And I these water-based products really shouldn't bring a whole lot of uh, deepening of color uh, with them. So that might be something to try. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah, because isn't it the, yeah, the oil-based ones are usually they kind of get in there and really Yell- yellow it, it up. Yellow it up. Yep. Janet, can you get to my question, please? I really want to know the answer. <laughs> oh, another. No. We get a lot of questions from Matt. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I was actually looking at side by side images of the bird she looks and like the grizzly cutter, and it's really, you know, because they oriented the teeth different, it's really hard to tell. Like, what's the difference? Yeah. Sorry, I'm still back on the previous question. <laughs> <laughs> For a hand tool guy, you're a little obsessed with something power toolish. <laughs> it's. I like technology. Anyway, this is a question from Matt. And he says, I have at least a couple of braces that I inherited over the years long before I started woodworking. They seem to be of good quality. Unfortunately, I don't have a single bit that I can use with them. I have already come across a situation where it would have been handy to have a three-quarter inch bit to drill a single dog hole in my bench. I'd be interested in hearing of other areas where this tool would be the most convenient for a task and also any recommendations on how to acquire a set of bits. 
Um, his big concern is, uh, you know, if I buy from eBay, I get a bunch of bits that are very old and rusty, and I don't want to spend a bunch of time restoring and sharpening them before I've even drilled my first hole. So, um, I mean, you hit it right out of the gates. Uh, the larger holes, three quarter and up, is definitely where the brace can be really, really useful. You can get a lot of torque on a ten inch standard um, ten inch brace, and a lot longer hole, a lot deeper hole. I guess would be the better way to put that. Um, you can go right to the the work and not have to take it apart and put it under a drill press or any of that stuff. So you can actually be really useful. And when you're working with a workbench and you don't necessarily lay out all your dog holes before and you just kind of add them when you need them, obviously you can't take that workbench and throw it under the drill press anymore. So that uh, that's a really good situation for it. But honestly, my instances of having to drill large holes are much rarer than the typical quarter inch, three eighths and under. And um, you can still use uh, a brace for that. And I, that's why I'm saying if you're looking to get a couple of bits, it might be better to focus on some of the smaller bits. And in that instance, uh, you know, you can go to a place like Tools for Working Wood and get them. But yeah, they're not, they're not cheap. Um, now, three-quarter inch bit is going to be a lot more expensive than a quarter inch and three-eighths. But then you just have to ask yourself, am I, you know, if I've already got a cordless drill or something like that, is it just make more sense to use that over the brazen bit? It does. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I have a brazen bit because I, I like them. I like using them. But I also still have a cordless drill over in the corner that I reach for from time to time. Um, the, the smaller diameter bits... I think the the biggest issue there with a brace is if you need to drill that really, really deep hole or through a really, really big piece, then the typical auger bit's going to give you that capacity where you're going to have a hard time doing that with a, a, a power drill, mm-hmm. especially a cordless like most of us have where, you know, the torque required to drive, you know, when the bit is six inches deep into the wood, there's a lot of, of, of torque in there. You might have some trouble with that. Um, but then, you know, you're going out and buying bits for that anyway, for those longer holes. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to be probably ostracized for saying this, but this might be one of those situations where those really nice bits can get uh, really, really nice braces can be um, hung on the wall as decoration, like Mark has in his shop. <gasps> Shit. Whoa! Oh, yeah, oh. I know, crazy, huh? True. Well, I mean, th- this is a guy that's obviously not, you know fallen down the hand tool rabbit hole like myself i mean most of the hand tool work i do it's out of pure enjoyment of working with the tools it's not any kind of statement or desire to you know reclaim my 18th century heritage or anything like that it's just it's the way i like to work i am a bit of a history buff that's what i like to do uh if he's looking for reasons to use this over you know the cordless drill he already has you're going to be hard pressed to really come up with it other than those instances where you're drilling that really large diameter hole in a really, really deep piece of wood. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. All right, next one here is from Drew. He says, I recently acquired an old drill press for my grandfather. I love it. A great addition to my small shop. I've been using a drum sanding attachment, two-inch diameter. What RPM would you recommend when using the drum sanding attachment? So this is something that uh, I've never done before, but we can certainly go online and, and look up some general numbers. The first thing I wanted to do was find out what do spindle sanders turn at. And uh, Grizzly has one, Jet has one. So it seems like they all are around 1725 for the RPM rating. So to me, it makes sense to kind of get close to that on the drill press. Um, you know, drill presses, depending on the model and the make, you know, you could have a very wide range of RPM settings. So what I would do is probably start out around a thousand 
And, you know, with sandpaper, the faster it goes, and it's not necessarily better, that means you might actually have more burning uh, and the thing could become un- unstable at higher speeds. So I would start out at about 1,000 and just see how it goes. If it's too slow, what's the worst that's going to happen? It's just going to sand slow. And then you can kind of, um, you know, so whatever adjustment mechanism you have as it's going, you can kind of just pull it up a little bit and bring it up closer to, you know, 1,200 and work your way up and see what the optimal speed is based on on the materials you're using and the drum itself and and the tool. Um, But ultimately, I think if the other units, the units that are dedicated to this, use 1725, that's probably around where you want to be. Sweet. S- short and sweet you, one today. Things like this are one of those, another indication that I was just destined to go into hand tools because I don't think I ever adjusted the speed on my drill press. You know, I, I have, didn't have a variable speed drill press. It was like, oh, I don't want to be open the lid and moving the belt around. So I think I had it not not quite the fastest, but like the second fastest, and I never changed it. You know, well, to Even be though honest, I knew I should have with that Forstner bed, I just, oh, I don't want to deal with to that. To be honest, I have a variable variable speed, and I rarely touch the handle. So, um, you know, I've, I've basically, once it's got a belt setting, you've got a range, and you could pull the arm back and forth to increase or decrease. I, it's so easy to do, but I don't really touch it. Um, it just, yeah. I don't And I, to. I use those little <laughs> yeah. drum sanders before, and I'm just trying to think what speed did I set it at? And I'm like, I don't remember even changing the speed on my drill press. Yeah. You kind yeah, of just go by here. go by feel, observe it. If you start to see burning, you you can kind of tell when it's going too fast. Um, but but again, seventeen twenty five is what the the dedicated units use. That's probably where I'd aim. You know, right after this email came in, we got another one uh, from somebody named Drew's grandfather, and he was wondering where his old drill press is, <laughs> and wondering if we could help him find it. Where the hell's my drill press? So, all right. all right. Well, let's move on to this next one. This this came in from Jim, and, and Jim says, I sharpen using a combination of sandpaper and whetstones. When I get a new blade to sharpen, I typically start with 220 wet, dry sandpaper and then move to 400 to remove mill marks and then flatten. And when I'm done with a 400 grit, I usually have a reasonably shiny surface, but it obviously needs more work. I then move to an 800 grit whetstone, and this is where the problem begins. I think I already see the problem here. Uh, as soon as I start with the, water, the whetstone, the steel turns immediately cloudy, no matter how long I work on it, it stays that way if I'm working on the back. Once I figure this is enough, I move on to a 4,000 grit whetstone to finish. The mirror finish I expect never happens. However, if I'm honing the bevel, no problem. I can get the mirror finish pretty quickly. This happens with both chisels and plain irons. They appear to be sharp, but I've always heard that you never really know sharp in, until you've experienced it. So I assume I haven't as of yet. Is this a case of crappy whetstones? I, I, I question that since I get a good finish on the bevel. It, is it something I should examine in my technique? So my first thing, I ended up writing Jim back and said, I, I think I found what the problem is here. Uh, the, the grits that are indicated on sandpaper and water stones, they don't quite they're not quite measured on the same scale, at least as far as I'm concerned. I, maybe I'm completely wrong on that. But I know for a fact that if you, and I've done this myself, if you say take your nice shiny surface that you achieve from the 400 grit sandpaper and then you take it to an 800 grit water stone, there's a reason why it's going to suddenly disappear. And that's because that 800 grit water stone is kind of acting more or less like, say, um, 120, 150 grit sandpaper. 800 grit water stone is pretty much intended for removing uh, some nasty nicks. It's the type of thing that you're going to reshape whatever blade you're using. So my advice is to, if you're going to do the combination of sandpaper and water stones, when you hit like that 400 grit sandpaper, you're pretty much ready to move on to uh, more of a a polishing stone because you've got it nice and uh, shiny. It looks fantastic uh, and, and go from there. Now, this is assuming that the back is actually flattened and not just simply shined up now because of the fact that you were 
you were running it on the uh, on that higher grit sandpaper. Mm. Uh, so as always, when it comes down to the advice, uh, maybe I'm jumping around a little bit here. Make sure that whenever you have a new blade, you sharp, flatten that back. You only need to do it once. And then once you go from there, then you can move on to the actual honing. But I think the biggest problem that we're running into here is the fact that he's mixing these two uh, mediums and assuming that there's like this, uh, that they're in the same order, that they're in the same uh family would that be the right way to maybe describe that uh a yeah, 400 it, it may not be an accurate one-to-one representation from from the the actual there you go grit size. exactly it's, it's it's a different type of abrasive to begin with so even if you were closer to the grits i always experience a little bit of cloudiness when i go from something other than waterstone to waterstone mm. right um even the same thing from oilstone to waterstone even though i, I don't do that often because all the oilstones i have are at the museum but you will experience a little bit of that cloudiness because it's a, just a different mechanism. Um, it's a different right. type of abrasive. Right. Well, and it's interesting, though, that he, he doesn't have the problem on the bevel. And for me, I know I find it much easier to sharpen a bevel than a back uh, just because it's, it's much less material. And you can right. actually – every stroke has a little bit more force behind it. So maybe that's all it is. As we know, even if it is a, a lower grit or a higher grit than you expect – eventually you'll be able to sand through and get, get it to be nice and consistent. Um, but yeah. if you can apply somehow more pressure, uh, then it'll happen faster. So I'm thinking that's probably what's going on with his bevel is that because he can apply more pressure, he's getting it to where he, he thinks it should be faster. Right. Yeah, you get into diminishing returns pretty quickly, though. You push down too hard on a stone, it will stop cutting. Well, I'm not, so I'm not telling them to push careful. harder. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> telling them to push harder. I'm just saying naturally when sharpening the bevel, you tend, right. you tend to push harder. It's a square inch thing. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I know I've got a couple of marble chisels, too, that no matter what I do, I mean, they're as good as they're going to get. Uh, I cannot get those backs to be at least, I don't know, 75% cloudy. Like, I get a little bit of a mirror shine in some parts. For some yep. reason, that particular steel, I just cannot get it to be a mirror shine. But the chisels work. It's sharp enough. I'm not too worried about it. So it, so there could be something with the, the steel itself or the tool itself, too. All right, Shannon, you're up. This is coming from Topher, which is just a great name. Love it. Um, I just lost my space, uh, my place in the notes. Okay, here we go. Hey, guys. I'm looking to make an outdoor table similar to Mark's not-so-rustic, rustic outdoor table. But instead of buying lumber by the board foot, I'm looking into buying decking. My first question is, to your knowledge, is decking lumber dried as much as regular lumber? Also, on an earlier episode, Matt has suggested if you were going to use 2 by material, you should use the larger pieces like 2 by 8s due to the fact that the smaller boards are almost an entire tree, um, meaning it's, it's like they've taken a little tree and they've just kind of cut it in half so you can actually find like complete growth rings in a little 2 by 4 uh, Does this apply to species like Ipe, Kumru, Tigerwood, Mazarinduba, or Garapa? The reason I ask is because the smaller 2x4 pieces are cheaper overall. The 2x8 pieces are nearly four times or three times as much on some of those species. I, I said four times because I actually think it is closer to four, four to five times more expensive on those wider pieces. Um, well, first things first, traditionally decking is not dried as much as regular lumber. Um, some people will call it air dried. Uh, in reality, it's still being kiln dried, but it's usually dried to around 18% instead of the 6 to 8%, at least in North America, that is. I don't know where he's writing this from. I'm assuming he's somewhere on this continent. Um, so yes, there is a moisture difference. The idea is if you take really, really kiln dried 6 to 8% material, you stick it out on the elements, 
it's going to go through a much greater shock in most parts of the country. This may not apply to somebody like like Mark down in the desert. Um, but if you have a wetter climate, um, higher humidities, there's a lot of shock going into that board at 6 to 8%. It's thrown out there. Decking is generally – a lot of decking is put rather close to the ground as there's more and more people with those decks put right on ground level. So there's a lot of moisture being injected into that board. And if it's way down at 6%, it's going to move big time. and It's going to cup and go all nuts on you. So the way to, to ameliorate that is to air dry it to 18%. Um, I wonder, I mean, if you're building an outdoor table, I think you should be fine there. I mean, if you're, if you're going to use it for decking, there's really no difference, except that now you're going to be made a piece of furniture set on top of your deck. You've got a little bit more exacting tolerances um, with a piece of furniture, and so you need to look at how you're going to put it together and, and determine if that's the, the way to go. But I can tell you, I know a lot of people who do this, who buy um, some sort of decking product, whether it's domestic or tropical, and they make furniture out of it and they have no problem at all. Mm. So um, the thing that I question is, um, Mark, remind me, I, I remember watching that video. You used Western Red Cedar, didn't you? Yep. For your... Um, that's an instance where I definitely suggest using two by material. But if you're going to use something like Ipe or Kumaru or any of those, I question whether or not you need two by material. That stuff is ridiculously dense, ridiculously strong, mm-hmm. and incredibly heavy and incredibly expensive. So, uh, you know, if you're talking about maybe the legs for the table, fine. But I wouldn't like do the top out of two by material. That's overkill. It's yeah. huge overkill. Um, there is a, a blog post I wrote for uh, the Lumberyard about uh, using Ipe as a boardwalk material. Boardwalks generally use two-by material because obviously boardwalks get a lot of traffic. But that's because generally they're made out of softwoods. They're made out of pressure-treated wood. And as the tropical species have come into, into play a lot more, people are just kind of knee-jerk saying, oh, I need two-by-six for that, that decking. Well, it's so much harder to get and so much more expensive if you look at the design values and the stress levels on um, uh, on Ipe, it's strong enough to stand up to those tests using one by or, or four quarter material. So you're going to be able to find a lot more material if you go with four quarter or you know one by six or, or one by four, whatever you're using. The other point is Matt's point about sticking with the wider stuff. If I remember correctly, we were talking about workbenches at the time. Um, and I believe Matt was referring specifically to construction lumber, you know, two by four fur and, and hem fur and stuff like that. This does not apply to decking lumber. Mm-hmm. Um, it's coming out of a much larger tree. It's cut down to those dimensions. They're not cutting little skinny Garapa, Masarinduba, Ipe, et cetera, trees. Um, first of all, you can't do that. It's illegal. So that's not going to be the, the same case here. So yes, I, I wouldn't try to go with that two by eight piece and then rip that down because first of all, the stuff is so dense and so hard, it's going to be real, real hard on your table saw blade or whatever blade you're using to try to rip decking lumber. You will regret that decision. So I would try to get your pieces as close to your final size as possible at that point. Yeah, you know, um, I think he's going to have trouble with uh, the suggestion of going with, um, you know, four quarter stock, thinner stock. The problem is the look. Uh, if he's if he's really trying to do something that looks similar to mine, that rustic outdoor farm mm, table really it really needs a thicker top. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with your suggestion. It's going to be tough a tough way to go with some of those species. Uh, but if he absolutely wants that look, I don't know that a four quarter top is actually gonna is gonna cut it. 
That's a, that's a good point. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's just the way design, the design works out. Right. Um, you know, I, that, that's an instance where SketchUp would be really useful, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, mock it up and use, well, um, if, if you're buying decking lumber, you're going to buy it in one by or five quarter. Um, so, uh, you know, the one by is going to be dressed to about three quarters of an inch and then the five quarter is going to be one inch thick. Mm-hmm. Most places are going to sell it in that respect. And then of course you can buy two by, which is going to be about one and a half inches thick. Um, I would pull out SketchUp and see what it looks like, you know, see, you might be better with the five quarter solution. If that's going to get the thickness for you, then you're going to save a heck of a lot of money going that route. Um, but if you got to have two by just no, you're going to pay through the nose for it. You can also um, do that thing where you use thicker material on the outside edges and just give it the appearance of being that's true. You know, so the that's bulk of it point. can be four quarter and the rest on the outside trim. Uh, it looks thicker. No one would ever know. Right. The lion's share of tropical decking material, any decking material is four quarter and five quarter by six or by four. Cause that's what we use for, for decks for the mm-hmm. actual decking boards. So 90% of the stuff that's being sawn is being sawn in those dimensions. So you really run into a bottleneck in the supply when you start talking two-by material. And a lot of times it can be more expensive to produce because they've got to do whole separate runs of it. So it's it's more inconvenient for the sawmills to make the two-bys. So they make less of it. And there's less of it to go around, which inflates the price in general. So um, I would think seriously before you know buying all two-by material. Cool. I think that answers all of his questions. I think so. Uh, Well, you know what? You can support the show if you want to. Not you guys. You support it by showing up. But uh, Oh, good. I was going to say, I'm like, I don't know if I could do any more. I know. Matt's got too many obligations as it is. Uh, The listeners can support us if they want to. There's a few ways you can do it. One, I mentioned earlier, the recurring donations or the one-time donations at woodtalkshow.com. Left-hand column, click those links. Kind of say the same thing every time, but, uh, you know, repetition is good. Uh, you can also go to TWWstore.com and get yourself a Wood Talk t-shirt, and you could leave us a review in the iTunes store. We always appreciate that. Just look us up in the store, click on ratings and reviews, and uh, click that little star rating. And a few people probably did, but I was too lazy to look them up, so we'll read those next week. Well, and we don't need to constantly be told how awesome we are, but yes, we do. Yes, we do. That's the only reason we come back. Yes. Uh, Matt, how about you give them the contact info, and we'll get out of here. All right, folks. Hey, do you have a comment, a question, or a topic suggestion? You know, there's several different ways to contact us. Did you guys know that? There's different ways. What? I never yeah, heard. Wow. Never yeah, heard you of You don't have to pick just one. There's options. Liar. Uh, well, you try them. Listen up. You can either do it by voicemail on our Skype, or our username is Woodtalk Online. You can call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. You could email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. You can even leave us a comment on our Woodtalk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. And you know what? I haven't said this in a while. I don't know if people are aware of this. But we have our own individual websites. Well, actually, this one kind of sits on, on one of those sites. And you can find Mark over at thewoodwhisperer.com. You can find Shannon over at renaissancewoodworker.com. You can find Matt over at Big Studwork. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. Matt'sBasementWorkshop.com. <laughs> and, of course, don't forget about the forums over at woodtalkonline.com. Good stuff. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. All right. See ya. See ya. information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.